0: I am thrilled to be with you today and the passage we're going to be talking about specifically we're going to be looking at Colossians 3 22 through 41 we're going to give you kind of an overview of Colossians 3 before we do that but this is how living missionally you know and when we talk about living missionally what we're talking about is having the mission of Jesus to make disciples of all the nations at the center of your core every day and we talk about that a lot and it gets real nice and theoretical oh yeah I want to be a missional Christian blah 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 well today is going to focus on what you can do as a transformed Christian to become a transformational Christian do you, do you understand what I'm saying so first the work of God in you is to transform you from the inside and secondly the work of God is to make you a transformational influence to those he brings into your world and today is about how we're gonna do that Uh, I have to be honest with you I wish I would have learned this a long time ago when I was a child I was foolish lazy I hated school I hated piano lessons I hated practicing the piano. I hated working in my dad's store. In short, I hated anything that kept me from watching TV or playing with my friends. Um, and and this, this was a pretty deep character flaw in my life that it took, got a long time to work out. It started, my journey to move out of that space started when I was about 14. I met a guy who was really old. He was 40 years old. And the fact that I could even talk to a man that old was just beyond me. It was amazing. But he got me started in my journey with Jesus. And one of the first things that changed was my attitude towards work. I went from being, you know, how quickly can I be done with this? And you know what? you know when you're lazy how time moves really slowly like I'd start at 9 o'clock and I go okay it's gotta be time to go home and I'd look nine six, and it's just I hated it it was just excruciating pain to be at the work and when I started working hard when I started exercising three qualities and if you're taking notes write down these qualities because if you're a parent you want to teach them to your kids if you're a person not that parents aren't persons but you know what I mean uh, if, if you're a person you want to build these into your life the first one is diligence diligence is that desire and habit of in any given situation doing your best in other words you know what, what did the old saying go if, if it's worth doing it's worth doing well or something like that that never resonated with me as a kid if it for me it was if it's worth doing it's worth putting the minimum effort you can possibly put into it. But when I learned that, that quality of diligence of, of doing my best in any given situation I started enjoying whatever that situation was mo- was more. There was a, a satisfaction in doing a job well. The second quality is initiative. And that's the, qu- it's a wonderful quality and by the way if you d- develop this you'll get ahead because it's the quality of seeing what needs to be done and then doing it without being asked it's not, wait- it's not waiting to be asked it's saying this needs to be done I'm gonna do it and so men if you want to be a great husband and father all you have to do is take initiative see what needs to be done in your family and then you take the first step towards meeting those needs if your wife needs spiritual input or con- encouragement or help you take that first step you don't even have to know what the second step is you just take the first step it's awesome and so unfortunately and I, I wish I could tell you that it transferred to schooling and I became a great student I actually hated school till the day I left seminary I mean I <laughs> from the day I entered kindergarten to the day I graduated from seminary I hated every day of school I was just not built for school whatever that is but and I I'm sorry as I look back. That's one of the regrets of my life that I didn't learn to apply those lessons of diligence and initiative into my school, but somehow it just never uh, made sense. So where we are is we're in Colossians 3, and what I want to do is give you an overview of where we've been, and then we'll jump into this section of Scripture today. Colossians 3, what? Oh, third quality. (laughs) You guys are listening. I actually did that on purpose. (laughs) Just to see if you were listening. (laughs) The third quality that will help you in all of life is perseverance. (laughs) And the quality of perseverance is simply that no matter what the obstacles are, you will never give up. Perseverance is no matter how hard it is, you take the next step. And if you, if you get those three qualities, it will just, it will help you so much and our, what we're talking about today is in the workplace or in the school environment or wherever it is that you're in some kind of a employee, employer, teacher, student, any kind of a relationship where there's authority involved, alright? Thank you for asking that though, but I had planned to do that, I was just testing you. So. <laughs> Anyway, key phrase of Colossians chapter 3 is if you have been raised up with Christ. It's important that you understand the word if does not introduce doubt. In the Greek language there are actually different kinds of ifs. There's the if of impossibility, you know. It's, it's the boyfriend saying to his girlfriend, oh, if I could fly, I would fly over the highest mountain for you, you know. Well, that's easy to say because it's an if of impossibility well it goes all the way over to an if of certainty and when and this is the if of certainty and really it's more accurate to translate the word since so think of this it's not Paul is not saying "Mm, I wonder if you've been raised up with Christ Paul is saying you have been raised up with Christ and now we're going to build on that foundation of the fact that you've been raised up with Christ the short answer to what changes when you've been raised up with Christ is everything everything and what I want to do is I want to walk you through some of the things that happen the moment you became a Christian Matthew 7 13 and 14 is becoming my favorite passage to describe how a person should become a Christian here's what Jesus says you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few find it." Now here's what Jesus is saying, you don't have to do anything to be on the broad road to destruction or to hell. We're on that by birth. The entire world is walking that huge freeway to destruction. And as you become a Christian, that decision is to change the direction of your life. That's what repent means, to change direction. And you get off of that broad road to destruction, and you go through a narrow gate. The narrow gate is Jesus. Why is he called the narrow gate? Jesus, John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me now I want you to hear what Jesus is saying because these are his words not mine he is saying that there is no other way by which a person can come into a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ that means every other religious system trying to get to God will fail you know it's very popular all roads lead to God kinda stuff if you're sincere it doesn't matter what you believe folks it does matter what you believe and when you're talking to your friends and they're saying, well, that's good for you, and it's kind of important to help them understand, no, that's not just good for me. If it's true, it's going to be true for everyone, or if it's not true, it's not going to be good for me. Okay, so we're, we're talking about objective truth. And so what happens is I go through the narrow gate who is Jesus. Every one of you are he- here who are going to heaven have gone through the narrow gate you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you've said he is now going to be the Lord of my life and you've begun a journey that Jesus calls a rough road. Now hear what he's saying, he's saying that to live the Christian life is going to be inherently more difficult than it is going to be to flow down the current of this world on the broad road. So it's a more difficult life, you say well why do I want that? Because it's better, it's better. And so now, what happens when you become a Christian? I want to just share with you a couple of things. Number one, you become a child of God. You are adopted into a family. And I, I got to tell you, one of the greatest privileges of being in Nepal is being with this guy whose name is Babu. Uh, it's illegal for Christians to have orphanages, so they actually adopt the children. They have adopted 60 children into their family. And the last group that they adopted was a group of five girls. The mother had died and the father just left. And so when the government found them, they were living behind a bus stop, scrounging water bottles and trying to sell them to people who were taking the bus ride in order to survive. Uh, The oldest girl was 11, the youngest was a a year and a half. The 11-year-old was taking over other sisters. Babu and his wife, Sibitri adopted them. They became their children. And I saw them when they first got there. And I saw them there a year later. They were confident, happy, going to school and succeeding, well-fed. They had friends, actually. They had family. And they were moving in a whole new direction. Why? Because they had been adopted into a new family. You guys, that's what God did when he made you his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. And he has given you a relationship not of fear, but of love. You're a child of God. Number two, your sins are forgiven, wiped clean. If you're taking notes, please write down Romans 8.1. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number three, God puts a new creation in you that bears his image that has been so broken by sin okay so God doesn't try to fix the old part of you that is so cool man my part was so broken there was no way it could have been fixed so he puts a new creation and Paul says in Colossians 3 that new creation has been created according to the image of the one who created him so my new creation is in the image of God and this is the basis for my transformation 2nd Corinthians 5:17. therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old is past the new has come finally God puts his Holy Spirit in you to transform you guide you and give you the boldness to share his good news with others I want to share with you something that's very important God does not give you his Holy Spirit to help you with your agenda he gives you his Holy Spirit said that you can participate in his agenda for your life so the scripture that describes normal Christianity to me is one of the most radical scriptures in the Bible It's Galatians 2 20 Paul says I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live so when you become a Christian you die It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the new life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me help you understand the nature of the Christian life. It is not you trying to live for God. It's not you trying to climb the ladder and get a little better each year and, oh, I'm going to try harder. No! It's Christ living his life through you. And when you get that, the Christian life becomes a whole different experience because it's his power working in you to make the changes, okay? So, Colossians 3 over for you. All of that we've just said is all contained in that little phrase since you've been raised up with Christ. So what's changed? Verses 1 through 4. My direction in life has been transformed. No longer am I pursuing the stuff of this world and making that the passion of my life now I'm pursuing the things above I'm pursuing people knowing that God loves them I'm pursuing stuff for his kingdom so helping the poor making a difference in the lives of people around me making a difference in the lives of people around the world those become my passions number two as I'm walking this new journey I've been laid, uh, I've been raised up with Christ, and now I'm walking, the sins of my past are going to be peeling away from me. I wish this were all instant, don't you? It's not. It's a process. That's why we need perseverance. But you learn, oh, sexual sin, immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, all of that stuff. That's not who I am, that's who I was. So as I'm walking forward in my relationship with Jesus, that stuff is moving into my past. Also relational sins of anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, that stuff, it begins to peel away from the past. Now, hang on to this, because some of you might say, you know what, that's just how I'm wired. I hate that phrase because what that says is I don't have any choice. If I am the kind of person who just blows up with anger and spews acid all over everybody around me hey that's just the way I'm wired and after all I feel good after I've been angry. been angry everybody else is burned from the lava coming out of your mouth but you feel better. Here's what I want you to understand there are certain things of what we might call wiring some people are loud and they over exaggerate to everything in life some people are very quiet and shy and they just kinda watch life more than get involved with it and these two kinds of people drive each other crazy that's fine some people like to move at a very quick place hey what are we doing tonight well we got nothing okay let's go have a party No, why don't we just have a quiet night at home? Oh, that's so boring. You see, so people have different paces of life and they drive each other crazy. They usually wind up getting married, don't they? (laughs) Isn't that the truth? I mean, when they say opposite attract, you hate parties, I love parties, let's get married! (laughs) Now, I'd say that's stupid, but I do the same thing. I did the same thing. I love risk and I love change. If things are the same for a week, I'll throw a hand grenade in our life just to change things up. <laughs> Connie likes the boring status quo. <laughs> blah blah blub. Let's keep going through life. You know. That's what she likes. And we're married and it's actually worked pretty well for 43 years. So I'm okay with that. Anyway, I don't know how I got on this. Alright, what were we talking about? Okay, anyway, we were talking about relational sins. Here's the point. God's not gonna change you from being a, a real expressive, dramatic person. What He is gonna do is remove the manipulative lying parts out of that. So that you're an expressive, overreacting, honest person that actually cares for other people. If you're a quiet, shy person, He's not gonna change that but he's going to make you into a quiet shy person who loves people enough to come out of your shell occasionally and talk to them and consider them. So what he's going to do is he's going to bring wholeness to your wiring that includes his love and his patience and his, his goodness. Okay, so relational sins we say bye to. The sin of lying and lack of integrity we say bye to. Now we come to verses 12 through 17 and this is so cool this is what we took about three weeks ago here Paul says since you have been raised up with Christ your relationships with believers in the body of Christ are going to be phenomenally transformed he says and so those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved in other words God has set you apart for his purpose and he has set his love on you you're going to be a person who develops compassion kindness gentleness patience all of these amazing qualities you're gonna become a person of peace do you you guys have any idea how powerful it is just to be a person of peace to be a person that whatever situation you get in you're calming the emotional fires of that difficulty instead of being a person who divides people you're a person who is helping people find reconciliation that's what the transforming power of God is gonna do in your life you're also going to become according to verse uh, 16 a person who as Jesus is transforming you you are going to be speaking into the lives of other people you may not be standing up in a pulpit telling people what to do but you are going to be working with people and helping them to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus 18 through 21 last week we we talked about family and so cool in a family you get into a new situation where there's Christians and non-christians mixed together right and in those situations as a transformed person you are going to be sowing seeds of respect and love and peace in your household you are going to make your family a better family just by the way you're living now in all of these that we've talked about your direction letting go of sin, building uh, love into your relationships, and building a family that glorifies God, Satan is always there to condemn, isn't he? If you're a kid who's broken a relationship with your parents, Satan is there, oh you've blown it, there's no coming back from that. Or if you're a parent who's broken a relationship with your kids, Satan is there to say, oh you blew it, there's no hope for that. But You know one thing I always used to tell parents who would come to me as a pastor and they'd say my, my kids have walked away from the Lord I said you know what are they still living and they'd say yeah the book's not finished yet the book's not finished yet and I've seen kids living in a Volkswagen van doped up beyond their imagination bringing nothing but grief to their parents and then maybe a year later the mom gets a call saying you know what I need to come back to Jesus. You guys, God does miracles. Jesus is the Savior who redeems broken situation. So Satan's always ready to condemn and Jesus is all ready to forgive and to redeem that situation. So never, ever, ever give up hope, especially in family relations. Keep moving forward and learning how to live in that situation, you'd be amazed what God will do. Final thing before we get on to today, Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Folks, if you want to be able to see God working in your life, this is where it starts, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you carry a really nice leather-bound Bible, (laughs) <laughs> with you at all times no I guess not that. that's not what it says if you have love for one another alright so now we come to the, the passage today Colossians chapter 3 verses 22 through 4 1. this is our relationships out there this is what you're going to be doing tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and the bottom line message is how you live on the job how you live in school, how you live in any relationship out there is incredibly important to Jesus Christ. So let's read it together, or I'll read it and you can follow. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the first century cultural, it's easy for me to say, the first century cultural context is slaves and masters. Isn't it interesting that Paul didn't write, hey, we need to meet on the steps of the Senate building and start demonstrating no slavery, no end slavery now, you know. There was no movement. And I want to help you understand why. Because as you look at Jesus, he is apolitical. You cannot find politics in the life of Jesus. As you look at Paul, Peter, John, James, all of those guys, they are apolitical. Their goal is not to change the structure of society. Their goal is through the power of the gospel to change people in society. So as Paul writes about slavery, he writes to slaves, and he says, here's how you can be a godly slave that brings glory to God. He writes to masters, here's how you can be a godly master who brings glory to God. We see this in an amazing way in the book of Philemon. And turn over to Philemon, we're gonna read in just a minute uh, 17 and 18 I think. Philemon is the story of a guy who was a slave owner and Onesimus, his slave, ran away and probably stole something when he ran. So Onesimus gets out of town, he goes to Rome, and he runs into this guy named Paul. Paul is in prison. At this time, it was more of a house arrest. It was, Paul had the ability to receive people, so there were probably always crowds around Paul's home. Onesimus comes in. Paul gives him the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Onesimus comes to Christ. Paul sends Onesimus the slave back to his master and he writes the letter of Philemon so that Philemon won't punish him when he comes back so what Paul says in verses 17 and 18 we don't have to worry about the chapter because there's only one chapter he says so if you considered me your partner he's writing to Philemon and he's talked about Paul is kind of good, he says, you know Philemon, you kind of owe me, I led you to Christ. Remember that? Remember that Philemon? Okay. So, you kind of owe me. So, and earlier he said, I could command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to do this. And so what he says is, would you receive him, Onesimus, the slave who ran away from you, as you receive me? If he has wronged you in any way or at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So, Paul is kind of clever here. The guy who led Philemon to Christ, he says, look, if he owes you something, I'm sure that's very serious, I'll pay for it. Philemon's going, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna ding you, Paul, right? So, here's the point. Paul sent Onesimus, a slave, back into a slave-master relationship, but a transformed slave-master relationship. Paul says, I don't want you to receive him as a slave. I want you to receive him as a brother in Christ. And Paul says, he's actually going to be more useful to you as a brother in Christ than he was ever as a slave. Now, you guys, Christianity wound up completely transforming Rome. But they didn't, by ch- didn't do it by changing their laws. They did it by bringing people to faith in Christ. And if you look at American history, every major revival has had huge implications on the communities where those revivals take place. Crime went down, people started treating each other more fairly, there was greater justice. All sorts of wonderful things happened, not because the laws were changed, but because the people were changed. Now if you want to know how effective it is to change uh, laws, uh, you should watch a, a series on Netflix called Prohibition. Because we all know how effective Prohibition was in changing the behavior of people, okay? What happened? Uh, people were getting drunk and living in bars and doing all of the thing. and this woman, it was a Christian woman's movement that brought this about and what they did was incredible. They actually passed a constitutional amendment. This wasn't a law. This was an amendment to the Constitution of the United States saying, thou shalt not drink nor shalt thou make drink, nor shalt thou sell drink. No drinking." And you know what, it completely solved the problem for about ten years, didn't it? Actually, actually that was the greatest period of lawlessness in the history of the United States. You don't change people's hearts by changing laws. You change people's hearts with the power of the gospel. And so, Paul, in writing to masters and slaves, he doesn't say, hey, we need to get rid of slavery. He says, I want to show you how to be a godly slave. And slavery was terrible back then. It was even worse than it is in the United States. And Paul writes to masters and he says, I want to teach you how to be a godly master. Okay. Now, today, our application is to employers and employees, to students and teachers to independent contractors to anybody who has any kind of an authority relationship with other people and by the way I think even by application we can extend this out if you're a salesperson if you're investment counselor if you're anything dealing with people the principle I'll give you the principle upfront the principle is real simple treat the person you're working for or the person working for you or the person that you're selling to as if that person were Jesus Christ. That's how godly people live in this world, okay? So let's look at this. First of all, the command. Verse 22, bond servants, employers, students, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart Fearing the Lord, this is so cool. The word "obey" literally means to hear. It's the word "hear," and let me tell you how this works. When I was uh, a student with my living with my parents, fourth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, senior in college, whenever. Actually, they didn't ask me by then; they had given up on me, but. They said, uh, so did, do you have any homework? Hmm, I don't know. Well, what did your teacher say? Um, I don't know. Now you see, I had no intention of doing what they told me to do. And when you don't have any intention to doing what people tell you to do, you don't listen very carefully. So I was actually being relatively honest when I said I didn't know if I had any homework. I knew in a, in a vague sense that I probably had something called homework to get done. But I didn't pay attention. Here's what Paul is saying. When you have a heart of obedience, it will sharpen your hearing. Does that make sense? Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema or the Shema, however you want to pronounce it. And the first word in the Hebrew is hear. Hear, O Israel. And the way God uses the word hear is to hear and obey. He sees those things together. So Paul says obey those who are your masters, earthly masters in everything. What he means is you don't just do The little line of what they told you to do. You actually hear not only their words, but their intent and their heart. And you work to fulfill their desires in everything. He goes on to say, not by way of eye service. You know what eye service is? Eye service is the person who, when the boss is there, they're working really hard. And and then the boss goes away and they just they completely change what they're doing. They are the most disgusting people on the face of the earth. And let me tell you why. Paul calls them people pleasers but they aren't really people pleasers they're me pleasers. They they treat you wonderfully to your face in order to gain an advantage from you. It's like the car salesman who, when you walk in, maybe you haven't seen him in several years, he says, wow, you look great. Have you lost weight? <laughs> well, yeah, I maybe I have, yeah, I, th- I think so. And why are they doing that? Because they genuinely can, no. Forgive me, car salesman, but I'm painting you with a very broad brush. I know there are some, some honest car salesmen in the world, but um, <laughs> but what are they doing? They're trying to gain an advantage. There, there's a word, it's ob- obsequious. And that means to fawn over people, to, to overly compliment them in order to gain a personal advantage. People pleasers are those who uh, we call them apple shiners and we have some other more disgusting terms for these kind of people. We'll leave those terms out for now. but. They are people who are working like crazy to be noticed for what they're doing but once that person of authority leaves, they stop doing it. So for example, it's a student in, in class who when the teacher goes out to take care of something and they're taking a test, that's their chance now to find out from the students what the answer is to the quiz that they didn't study. They're there to make noise and to make problems for everybody else because they're in it for themselves if this is a tendency in you I want you to understand this is a serious character flaw if you're a student your friends will laugh at you they'll think you're funny they'll think it's really cute and clever what you're doing but what you're doing is being a witness to Jesus Christ that is disgraceful. You are saying to people around you, "Don't pay any attention to Jesus Christ because he had, can't do anything in my life, and he probably won't do anything in yours." So Paul says, "Don't be this kind of employee. Don't be this kind of student. Obey them in everything. Not as eye pleaser. Not as not by way of eye service or men pleasers or people pleasers. But fearing the but, in sincerity of heart fearing the Lord Um, the word sincerity is amazing simply means to be free from pretense or deceit sincerity is this kind of person that what you see is what you get if I say something to you you can have confidence that if I'm talking to somebody else about you I'm not gonna say something different A person of sincerity is a person of integrity, of honesty, a person who will always do what they say they're gonna do. There's something really cool about this. Paul says that what we do, we do fearing the Lord. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that we're to be afraid of God, but what Paul is helping us to understand is that even if your boss has gone on a two-week vacation, God is there and he's watching and he cares about what you're doing. So a person in this context is really respecting the presence of God. Have you noticed, by the way, how many news stories now are being initiated by cell phone videos? You know, my my greatest prayer in life is, Lord, never let me be a viral video. I I do... (laughs) I do not want that kind of fame ever. But it's funny for years people have been doing things that are obnoxious and unkind and uncouth and and now in today's world they're getting found out and everybody who does the same thing by the way looks at them and says oh isn't that terrible that they're doing that I'm just glad I didn't get filmed. And so here's the point. What is happening to these people in viral videos is going to happen to everyone one day. Jesus says what is spoken in secret will be shouted on the housetops. Paul said we will be evaluated or judged by the Lord and our judgment will not be for eternal destiny but it will be for rewards but everything we have done in the flesh whether good or bad will be revealed. So you guys, we are going to have, I don't know how long the judgment is going to take, but the viral videos are going to be horrible in heaven. I have no desire to laugh at anybody else because when my turn comes up, I'm going to be a little bit nervous about that, I'll be honest with you right now. Here's the point, we live our lives on a moment-by-moment basis knowing the fact that Jesus Christ is watching and Jesus Christ cares how we're living. All right, let's go on now. He says, verse 23 whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord work heartily as for the Lord what that means is dive into your work with your whole heart do the very best you can give it your best shot you may be in a situation where you can't stand your boss you may think he's a jerk or unfair or a creep or you know all of these kind of things but Paul says I want you to work as if you're working directly for Jesus Christ you know when I was going through student uh, through school it was amazing every teacher I ever had was unfair and had it in for me (laughs) I don't know how that worked out every teacher had it in for me my parents would say, why are you doing so badly? They got it in for me. And that's why I was doing school so badly. They never bought it either, by the way. I don't think you're buying it. But uh, here's the point. It doesn't matter even if your teacher really does have it in for you. And parents, this is so important to help your kids see this. It doesn't matter if your boss really is playing favorites with other people and giving them easier assignments or giving them greater pay or whatever they're doing. It doesn't matter. Your job is to work heartily as if you're working for Jesus Christ directly. He goes on to say, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. This is where things get exciting. If you get this straight and you start working for Jesus Christ, God is actually going to be rewarding you for selling McDonald's burgers or whatever it is you're doing. He is going to reward you for those things because you're doing it for them. Martin Luther, all the way back in the 1500s, came up with this amazing concept that all work is sacred. And here's what he said. The farmer who is shoveling manure or the maid who is milking the cows pleases God just as much as the pastor who preaches a sermon. And folks, I believe that with all my heart. If you go to work tomorrow and you're doing it for the Lord, I want you to know that Jesus is gonna be so excited about what you're doing because you are making a difference for his kingdom by the way that you work. And there are two wins to that. Number one, you'll enjoy it more. I guarantee you, you will enjoy work if you put your best into it. And number two, the witness of your life will grow. Now let me explain something. There's a lot of people who won't like you, right? Because there is a culture of laziness in the United States. I had a friend, I won't tell you what government agency he worked for, but he was delivering mail and (laughs) and he uh, was new there and he came back about halfway through the day and his supervisor he said what are you doing? He says well I finished delivering my mail I came back to see if there was something else I needed to do. He says no you never come back. <laughs> this is what he was told by his supervisor don't come back go to a bar do whatever you want but stay out because you're making it bad for everybody else. And he actually ultimately, and I, I, I'm not saying that all, whatever that agency is, uh, are doing that. But, but in that particular office, he actually had to leave because he could not work with diligence. He could not be a witness for Christ because the supervisor, you know, and I, I guess you could say, well, my supervisor is telling me to be lazy, so I'll be lazy for the Lord. But uh, he, that didn't work with his thinking. But there are people, you know, we used to call them curve breakers in school, you know. The people who actually studied for tests. It was just disgusting. (laughs) But, But whether I like them or not is irrelevant. And I don't know whether they were doing that for the Lord. But if they were, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ was pleased with what they were doing. Paul goes on. In verse 25, and he says something. Well, let me finish 24. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. What Paul is just trying to hammer this into us, that what you do in the workplace is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. If we can get that through our heads, it's gonna help everything to clear up for us. Now he goes on, verse 25. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. There are two applications to this. Number one, let's say you're working for a boss who is truly a jerk. They're angry, they're unfair, they condemn you for things you didn't do, they're always on your case no matter what, guess what? They are going to give an account for how they lived. The one who does wrong will receive the recompense for that wrong and they'll receive that without partiality. And so, Paul is saying, look, it's not up to you to take your revenge, I'll take care of them. You keep serving as if you were serving me. Now the second application comes back to me, that if I do wrong, I'm going to receive the recompense of my wrong without part, and that without partiality. So let's jump into, finally, chapter 1 verse 4, or chapter 4 verse 1. I love this, masters, employers, independent contractors who are selling to other people, Teachers, wherever you are, treat your bond servants justly. What does he mean? Never use your power to treat those under you with injustice. You want to get God angry at you, he hates injustice. I had a friend who worked for a major corporation, uh, the CEO um, took the corporation into bankruptcy so that they could uh, nullify all of the pension contracts. My friend got about 10 cents on the dollar for the pension that he had worked his entire life for and the CEO walked away with a $30 million bonus. I wanna tell you something, that behavior enrages God and that wrong is going to be judged and it's going to be judged without partiality. God hates it when people in power take advantage of people without power. And so the first thing he says is treat your employees, treat the people who work for you with justice. Never use your power over them to bring injustice into their lives and secondly, treat them with fairness fairness does not mean equality of result it means equality of opportunity so it doesn't mean you have to give everybody the same raise and I think that's very important to understand Uh, it means that the guy who works harder ought to get a bigger raise than the guy who doesn't work harder that's that is fair our modern-day version of fairness is is really skewed and it's not what God has to say so when he says to you as a master or employer teacher whatever Treat people as they deserve to be treated. No more, no less. And I love the, re- the reason. Knowing that you have a master in heaven. Guys, even if I'm the CEO of the largest company in the world, guess what? I'm accountable, right? I have a master in heaven. And so if you own a business, if you are Uh, working hard to, to make your business prosper, don't do it at the expense of the people who are working for you. Make it a situation where they are being blessed as you are being blessed. So what's the bottom line of today? The bottom line is very simple. The way I glorify God is if I'm an employee, if I'm a student, by doing the very best I can and doing it specifically and intentionally for Jesus Christ. Be kind of fun if your boss says, hey, you did a good job, and you say, well, thank you, but I didn't do it for you. (laughs) I did it for Jesus Christ. Now, they may be ticked off, but they'll be happy you did the good job, so they'll kind of balance each other out. But I want to close, and uh, we're going to invite the worship team up with a a passage of scripture that I think helps me to understand the whole Christian sense of wealth and power from God's perspective so what I'd like to do we're actually going to stand up and we're going to read this together okay and the first hour they didn't do so hot I kinda had to challenge them to read with enthusiasm so So let's start from the beginning, do this right. This is an amazing passage of scripture, okay? Let's read together. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion people are made great and given strength. O our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people, that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you and we give you only what you first gave us. Amen? Amen. So, Father, as we go into our time of worship, I just pray that you'd open our hearts to what you've done for us. And tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, may we live with gratitude and live with diligence in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.